Welcome to Bitcoin Sermons, the podcast that preaches how Bitcoin is connected to the coming of Jesus. It's a fascinating topic, and I think it's like the elephant in the room that not many are really talking about, even though it's so obvious. Well, whether you're a Bitcoiner or a Christian or both, this podcast has something for you. All right, so let's go on then to the next section in this article about John Locke. And for Hobbes, the necessity of an absolute authority in the form of a sovereign followed from the utter brutality of the state of nature. The state of nature was completely intolerable, and so rational men would be willing to submit themselves even to absolute authority in order to escape it. For John Locke, the state of nature is a very different type of place. And so his argument concerning the social contract and the nature of men's relationships to authority are consequently quite different. While Locke uses Hobbes's methodological device of the state of nature, as do virtually all social contract theorists, he uses it to a quite different end. Locke's arguments for the social contract and for the right of citizens to revolt against their king, were enormously influential on the democratic revolutions that followed, especially on Thomas Jefferson and the founders of the United States. So just, that's an important point here, because the United States has such a huge role and a huge influence in the realm of social contracts. And what we're reading here about John Locke is essentially the perspective of the United States, or at least the founding perspective. Locke's most important and influential political writings are contained in his two treatises on government. The first treatise is concerned almost exclusively with refuting the argument of Robert Filmer's Patriarcha that political authority was derived from religious authority, also known by the description of the divine right of kings, which was a very dominant theory in 17th century England. We talked a little bit about that. The second treatise contains Locke's own constructive view of the aims and justification for civil government and is titled An Essay Concerning the True Original Extent and End of Civil Government. And I would just kind of make a side note here that these two treatises on government correspond to the two basic tenets of the formation of the United States, one being the principle of Protestantism, which is the rejection of the divine right of kings, the rejection of popery, and the other is republicanism, corresponding to, as we read here, Locke's own constructive view of the aims and justification for civil government. Okay, According to Locke, the state of nature, the natural condition of mankind, is a state of perfect and complete liberty to conduct one's life as one best sees fit, free from the interference of others. This does not mean, however, that it is a state of license. One is not free to do anything at all one pleases, or even anything that one judges to be in one's interest. The state of nature, although a state wherein there is no civil authority or government to punish people for transgressions against laws, is not a state without morality. The state of nature is pre-political, but it is not pre-moral. Persons are assumed to be equal to one another in such a state, and therefore equally capable of discovering and being bound by the laws of nature. The law of nature, 
which is, on Locke's view, the basis of all morality, and we could also say that the law of nature is the law of God, and given to us by God, commands that we not harm others with regard to their life, health, liberty, or possessions. Because we all belong equally to God, and because we cannot take away that which is rightfully His, we are prohibited from harming one another. So the state of nature is a state of liberty where persons are free to pursue their own interests and plans, free from interference, and because of the law of nature and the restrictions that it imposes upon persons, it is relatively peaceful. Okay, so to sum it all up, Locke is basically coming from a biblical perspective here, a godly perspective, and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Human nature, unlike how Hobbes described it as basically being equivalent to the sinful human nature, human nature has a certain sense of morality, has a certain fear of God, has a certain notion of what is right as taught by the laws of nature which are the laws of God. And so Locke is essentially approaching the subject of social contracts from the perspective of the repentant human nature, which to me as a Christian is much more appealing, even though it is, I think, still very valuable that we had Hobbes's sort of baseline view under the assumption that all people are sinful by nature. So let's see how Locke develops this. The state of nature, therefore, is not the same as the state of war, as it is according to Hobbes. It can, however, devolve into a state of war, in particular, a state of war over property disputes. Whereas the state of nature is the state of liberty, where persons recognize the law of nature and therefore do not harm one another, the state of war begins between two or more men once one man declares war on another by stealing from him or by trying to make him his slave. Okay, so we have two definitions given here for the state of war. One is by stealing and the other is by attempting to make someone a slave. Now, if we just look at the modern state of the world and particularly in the financial context, we can see where the theft is taking place on the part of governments stealing from the people, and we can see where the slavery is taking place on the part of corporations under the influence of government, essentially requiring people uh, to serve as bond servants in order to pay their debts. So the current state of the world is a state of war in that sense. All right, let's go on here. Since in the state of nature, there is no civil power to whom men can appeal. So remember, he's describing the pre-political condition when he describes the state of nature. Since in the state of nature there is no civil power to whom men can appeal, and since the law of nature allows them to defend their own lives, they may then kill those who would bring force against them. Since the state of nature lacks civil authority, once war begins, it is likely to continue. And again, we could see this in the story of Cain and Abel. And in fact, I want to read that because it's so pertinent to this situation, not just the facts, but the exact conversation there. So let's go to Genesis, and let's just start in chapter 4, verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? He lied, obviously. And he said, What hast thou done? 
The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. God knew what had happened. Verse 11. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. Now, this is interesting what Cain understood his punishment to be. Okay, verse 13 and 14. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. Cain understood that his punishment and that his life as a fugitive meant what it means for all fugitives, that if they were to be found, they would be killed. That is exactly what we read of the state of nature in the view of John Locke. Once war begins, it is likely to continue. Since the law of nature allows them to defend their own lives, they may then kill those who would bring force against them. In other words, the people execute justice. They execute vindication one upon another. And this propagates the state of war. And this is one of the strongest reasons that men have to abandon the state of nature by contracting together to form civil government. So, in other words, it's saying here that we need social contracts because in the state of nature, even among repentant human beings, once sin breaks out in some form, it's likely to spread and never return. And this is kind of like the idea, can a pure thing come out of something impure? Can the sinful nature ever become whole again? Now, while on an individual level we can say yes through Jesus Christ, it becomes a lot harder to say yes on a societal level. Is there a way for society to live in harmony as long as there is one sinner through whom sin will be seeded and propagate throughout society through this declaration of war one on another by stealing and by slavery. And according to John Locke, the only way out of this is to join together in social contracts to form civil government. Okay, this is his argument in favor of social contracts. So let's continue here. Property plays an essential role in Locke's argument for civil government and the contract that establishes it. We saw that because stealing was an important consideration in what constitutes a declaration of war of one man against another. According to Locke, private property is created when a person mixes his labor with the raw materials of nature. So, for example, when one tills a piece of land in nature and makes it into a piece of farmland which produces food, then one has a claim to own that piece of land and the food produced upon it. This led Locke to conclude that America didn't really belong to the natives who lived there because they were, on his view, failing to utilize the basic material of nature. In other words, they didn't farm it, so they had no legitimate claim to it, and others could therefore justifiably appropriate it. Now, this parenthetical remark here in this article, I found to be quite refreshing. 
In today's day and age, we have this narrative of, well, you know, the Europeans came and just took the land by force from the Native Americans. And certainly while some injustices toward the natives are undeniable, that doesn't mean that the nation was occupied by Europeans and taken over by force and that the settling of the United States was immoral. No. In fact, the very term settling embodies this view of John Locke that the land was essentially wild. It was undominated. It was unsettled. It was not replenished in the words of Genesis. And the sparse populations of the Native Americans, comparatively speaking, were not evidence of land that had been fully replenished. There was still room in the land. And in many accounts, the Europeans, the settlers, they came and would have inhabited the land peacefully alongside the natives, if possible. They would have replenished the land in peace. But the natives made war through stealing and killing and other things. So I find Locke's views here to be very based and very refreshing overall, also given the God-fearing perspective that he has. All right, continuing. Given the implications of the law of nature, there are limits as to how much property one can own. One is not allowed to take more from nature than one can use, thereby leaving others without enough for themselves. Yeah, and think about how Bill Gates is taking up all the farmland just to leave it uncultivated and to constrain the food supply. That's not part of the social contract. Because nature is given to all mankind by God for its common subsistence, one cannot take more than his own fair share. Property is the linchpin of Locke's argument for the social contract and civil government because it is the protection of their property, including their property in their own bodies, that men seek when they decide to abandon the state of nature. And again, going back to Bill Gates, ask yourself whether vaccines, particularly ones that change the human nature genetically, ask yourself whether that is protecting private property beginning with one's own body or whether that is promoting slavery and death. So this is very interesting when it comes to looking at how Bitcoin is related to the social contract, because in particular, Bitcoin is the first implementation of true property rights that the world has ever known. And by true property rights, I mean truly enforced, justly enforced property rights. The concept of property rights has been in existence for a long time, and it has generally devolved upon the kings and the governments to enforce and ensure property rights for the citizens. But that has not always been conducted in a fair way. And it has gotten to the point today where taxes on, you know, property taxes are so high, for example, that you can't really ever own land in places like the United States, for example. Essentially, you always have this tax every year that you've got to pay. And if you don't pay it, ultimately, the state can come and reclaim your property and sell it to somebody else who will pay the taxes. So in essence, you rent the property from the state. There are no actual property rights. 
the property rights are no longer upheld in a fair and just manner. Bitcoin, on the other hand, does uphold property rights in a fair and just manner. And it does so through ownership of your Bitcoins by way of holding your own private key. Nobody can touch or tax your Bitcoins as long as you hold your private key and you do not authorize it. But it's also not unjust to the government, to the system, because in the moment that you want to do a transaction, you do have to pay your transaction fee. That's your tax, so to speak, if you will. And that's rightfully charged by the system that is facilitating that transaction, the Bitcoin network as a whole. So it puts the cost where it rightly belongs, on the transfer of property, where the work is actually done, and not on the holding of property. It's not a rent-seeking system. So very interesting that the linchpin, as they say, of Locke's argument for the social contract is the protection of private property, which is what Bitcoin excels at. That's to say Bitcoin is perhaps the ideal form of civil government, if we could say that, that would fulfill Locke's vision for civil government. According to Locke, the state of nature is not a condition of individuals, as it is for Hobbes. Rather, it is populated by mothers and fathers with their children or families, what he calls conjugal society. These societies are based on the voluntary agreements to care for children together, and they are moral but not political. Political society comes into being when individual men representing their families come together in the state of nature and agree to each give up the executive power to punish those who transgress the law of nature and hand over that power to the public power of a government. Having done this, they then become subject to the will of the majority. In other words, by making a compact to leave the state of nature and form society, they make one-body politic under one government and submit themselves to the will of that body. One joins such a body either from its beginnings or after it has already been established by others, only by explicit consent. Having created a political society and government through their consent, men then gain three things which they lacked in the state of nature. Laws, judges, to adjudicate laws, and the executive power necessary to enforce these laws. Each man, therefore, gives over the power to protect himself and punish transgressors of the law of nature to the government that he has created through the compact. So, there it is. That's his essentially his vision or his justification and vision for how the social contract should give rise to government. And again, Although he doesn't describe this government in terms of a king, but rather in terms of laws, judges, and an executive branch, we can still see that this form of government can fall short insofar as it can be corrupted and that the laws can be unjust and the judges can incorrectly adjudicate those laws and the executive powers can enforce what is not in the best interest of the people. But, again, we see that when Bitcoin comes into the concept here to supply the place of this civil government that John Locke is arguing for on the basis of social contracts, we see that these weaknesses are overcome. 
The laws are determined by the people running the Bitcoin nodes. Code is law. The judges to adjudicate the laws are impartial. Those are the nodes themselves, which are spread out over the people and not concentrated in a select handful of judges. And the executive power to enforce the laws is also present in the system itself insofar as that transactions are validated according to the laws and due to the nature of the way the system is constructed, it is not possible to work contrary to the laws. You cannot submit a double-spend transaction in which you would defraud somebody of payment that is due to them, for example, because the system simply won't allow it. It executes perfect justice. And this is a system in which, truly, each man, therefore, can give over the power to protect himself and punish transgressors or prevent transgression to that system, to Bitcoin, to that government that he has created through the compact. In other words, by joining in this social contract of Bitcoin, by running a node, by holding Bitcoin, transacting on the Bitcoin network, by moving off of the fiat standard and into the Bitcoin standard, by opting in with explicit consent, as Locke said, to this social compact, the individual gains the protection that the system provides, the protection of his private property in particular. And I thought it was quite interesting and fitting that John Locke described that a person's right to property had to do with his ability to administer that property, to make use of it. In other words, he couldn't just claim land and say, yep, that's mine, you know, without having the power to actually till that land and make use of it. In the same way, if you don't have keys to some Bitcoins, you don't really own anything on the Bitcoin network. If you don't have the power to administer your will over those funds, then you don't really own those funds. It is also in that line of thinking, very interesting that there is a fixed number of Bitcoins corresponding to the fixed amount of real estate in the world. And so the system of Bitcoin fits very well with the mindset, with the perspective that John Locke had when he argued in favor of social contracts. Very interesting, I think. So let's continue here. Given that the end of men's uniting into commonwealths is the preservation of their wealth and preserving their lives, liberty, and well-being in general, Locke can easily imagine the conditions under which the compact with government is destroyed and men are justified in resisting the authority of a civil government, such as a king. When the executive power of a government devolves into tyranny, such as by dissolving the legislature and therefore denying the people the ability to make laws for their own preservation, then the resulting tyrant puts himself into a state of nature and specifically into a state of war with the people. And they then have the same right to self-defense as they had before making a compact to establish society in the first place. In other words, the justification of the authority of the executive component of government is the protection of the people's property and well-being. So when such protection is no longer present, or when the king becomes a tyrant and acts against the interests of the people, they have a right, if not an outright obligation, to resist his authority. The social compact 
can be dissolved and the process to create political society begun anew. Now, I find this very interesting because, well, because I agree with it, and it's very logical and clear. And it basically says that when a government no longer protects your private property, you have a right, if not an outright obligation, to resist the authority of that government. And now when you look at the world today and you ask yourself which governments are securing the right to private property, which is first and foremost the right to one's own life and body, and by extension the right to the property, land for example, that you invest your body, your efforts, your labors into, then it's time to dissolve that government and start anew on better principles or at least on a better implementation of the social compact. It's not the social compact theory that is the problem. According to Locke, this is not a problem with the social compact itself, but with the implementation of it, and that the people should essentially seek a more perfect implementation of the social compact when it is no longer protecting private property rights. Okay, so now... Take this and let's look at the big picture that we talked about earlier, about the options that society is facing at this point in time. Now, keep in mind that, you know, John Locke described the settling of America as being, I mean, I'm putting it in my own words now, but as being the replenishing of the earth, as being the filling of a sparsely populated area. Not the taking of land from others who were using it, but of simply making use of land that others were not using. Now, you could argue that the natives were deliberately leaving the land fallow, deliberately not cultivating it for whatever intentions they might have had, out of respect for nature or whatever it might have been. I think that might be a little bit of a skewed view, but even if that were the case, the principles at play here are still the same. And that's that, as a whole... We have reached the point where the world is full and man cannot simply go out and take land that is uncultivated and homestead it, so to speak, or, you know, invest his energy into it to make it his because pretty much everything belongs to somebody. And we're at this point, like we compared in the last episode with Bitcoin, where the blocks are full and to put in a transaction, you're going to have to compete against others. You're going to have to pay for that transaction. You're going to have to make a bid for the block space that would otherwise be occupied by others. We've reached that critical point that God intended by commanding mankind to fill the earth. Now that the earth is full, we've transitioned into a new phase, a new phase in which property is no longer cheap, in essence. Block space is no longer cheap, so to speak. There's no vacant space, and we have to act and that brings into play different principles. So Locke's idea of the importance of private property rights can be seen in real life here. And in particular, we can recognize that we are no longer in this phase where there is any kind of native land anywhere in the world that we can just take and, and develop and make it our own. We're out of that phase. We're out of the sparsely populated earth phase. And we are now in the phase where the earth has been replenished. And we have to look at things 
from a different perspective because there's there's nowhere you can flee to. There's nowhere you can run to where you're going to find space where you aren't still under the observation and control of some government. And the only question, again, we come to this point, is it's not a question about whether there will be a one-world government. It's a question of what character that government will have. Now, the existing tendency is toward a government that, as you can see by looking around today, does not protect private property rights. It assumes that a full world means that you cannot grant everyone property rights because there isn't enough property to go around. And therefore, we need a reduction of population and such things like that. And the government needs to control the property and, 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 and. Okay, that is one system. But Bitcoin comes and it offers a different perspective. It offers a system that does protect property rights, albeit virtual property in the form of Bitcoins, intangible money on a blockchain, mere information, but yet it is valuable property in the sense that there are a fixed number of Bitcoins. And this provides an important model for how we live in the real world. And perhaps more than just a model, but even a, how shall we say, a system which we can integrate the real world into so that the principles of Bitcoin apply also to the real world. And we do that insofar as we migrate to the Bitcoin standard and we start using Bitcoin for everything we do in the real world. Okay, but the point I want to make here is that this is the other choice. You've got the choice between the world's way, the existing banking system with CDBCs and all the quote-unquote improvements that are coming to further strip people of their property rights, or you have the system of Bitcoin, which you can opt into as a social contract, which will protect your private property, and which does give hope in the form of understanding as to how a finite world can be happily occupied by human beings who fill it without feeling like there is constant injustice and constant war over who owns what, okay? Because Locke did not envision the state of nature as grimly as did Hobbes, he can imagine conditions under which one would be better off rejecting a particular civil government and returning to the state of nature with the aim of constructing a better civil government in its place. It is therefore both the view of human nature and the nature of morality itself which account for the differences between Hobbes's and Locke's view of the social contract. All right. So once again, we see that the social contract theory has been refined, in this case, by the recognition of property rights as being foundational, and also by recognizing that implementations may fall short and can and should be replaced whenever that is the case. And so today, when we look at the world and we see the social contract theory of government as it is playing out today, we should not be quick to criticize the theory itself, but to recognize that we have an implementation that's falling short, that is no longer enforcing private property rights, which are foundational 
to the social contract. And therefore, the implementation needs to be done away with and a new social contract needs to be established with a better implementation. And I posit to you that that's Bitcoin. All right, next we come to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who lived and wrote during what was arguably the headiest period in the intellectual history of modern France, the Enlightenment. He was one of the bright lights of that intellectual movement. Okay, I I think I'm not going to read every word here, but I'm going to try not to leave out anything meaningful. Rousseau has two distinct social contract theories. The first is found in his essay, Discourse on the Origin and Foundations of Inequality Among Men, commonly referred to as the Second Discourse, and is an account of the moral and political evolution of human beings over time, from a state of nature to modern society. As such, it contains his naturalized account of the social contract, which he sees as very problematic. The second is his normative or idealized theory of the social contract and is meant to provide the means by which to alleviate the problems that modern society has created for us as laid out in the social contract. In his first theory, he describes the historical process by which man began in the state of nature and over time progressed into civil society. According to Rousseau, the state of nature was a peaceful and quixotic time. People lived solitary, uncomplicated lives. Their few needs were easily satisfied by nature. Because of the abundance of nature and the small size of the population, competition was non-existent, and persons rarely even saw one another, much less had reason for conflict or fear. Moreover, these simple, morally pure persons were naturally endowed with the capacity for pity, and therefore were not inclined to bring harm to one another. This is describing something very much in harmony with the biblical history of the earth. And I think really goes to make the point that times have changed and we are no longer in this situation where the earth's resources are abundant in comparison to the size of the population. The earth has now been subdued. As time passed, humanity faced certain changes. As the overall population increased, the means by which people could satisfy their needs had to change. People slowly began to live together in small families, and then in small communities. Divisions of labor were introduced, both within and between families, and discoveries and inventions made life easier, giving rise to leisure time. Such leisure time inevitably led people to make comparisons between themselves and others, resulting in public values, leading to shame and envy pride and contempt. Most importantly, however, according to Rousseau, was the invention of private property, which constituted the pivotal moment in humanity's evolution out of a simple, pure state into one characterized by greed, competition, vanity, inequality, and vice. For Rousseau, the invention of property constitutes humanity's fall from grace out of the state of nature. Now, I think this is very interesting, first of all, because it seems very contrasting to Locke's view, where private property and the protection of it is considered the cornerstone or foundation of the social contract. But here, Rousseau is apparently recognizing the pitfalls, again, of social contract theory as it had developed up to that point. And so this is valid. It is the case that there is a lot of greed, competition, vanity, inequality, and vice 
on account of the misuse of private property or the misallocation of private property. And so there are valid points here that Rousseau is making, although we should not be quick to find fault with the social compact theory, but rather to recognize what those weaknesses are. And I believe you'll see how Bitcoin addresses that as we go forward. Having introduced private property, initial conditions of inequality became more pronounced. Some have property and others are forced to work for them, and the development of social classes begins. Eventually, those who have property notice that it would be in their interests to create a government that would protect private property from those who do not have it but can see that they might be able to acquire it by force. So government gets established through a contract which purports to guarantee equality and protection for all, even though its true purpose is to fossilize the very inequalities that private property has produced. In other words, the contract, which claims to be in the interests of everyone equally, is really in the interests of the few who have become stronger and richer as a result of the developments of private property. This is the naturalized social contract which Rousseau views as responsible for the conflict and competition from which modern society suffers. So I think he's seeing valid points here. And if we look at Bitcoin, you will immediately notice that it also allows some people, particularly early adopters, to own large amounts of Bitcoin, large amounts of property, so to speak, to the exclusion of those who cannot afford them. But it also does protect private property from those who would take it by force. So it fulfills that role of government that the social contract exists for. But the question is, does the government of Bitcoin guarantee equality and protection for all? Or does it fossilize the very inequalities that private property has produced? In other words, does it favor the whales or does it truly provide equal opportunity? I want to resolve that question, but let's also proceed here and try to understand how Rousseau thought the solution should be. What was his contribution to social contract theory. The normative social contract argued for by Rousseau in The Social Contract is meant to respond to this sorry state of affairs and to remedy the social and moral ills that have been produced by the development of society. The distinction between history and justification, between the factual situation of mankind and how it ought to live together, is of the utmost importance to Rousseau. While we ought not to ignore history, nor ignore the causes of the problems we face, we must resolve those problems through our capacity to choose how we ought to live. Might never makes right, despite how often it pretends that it can. The social contract, Rousseau's take, begins with the most oft-quoted line from him. Man was born free and he is everywhere in chains. This claim is the conceptual bridge between the descriptive work of the second discourse and the prescriptive work that is to come. Humans are essentially free, and we're free in the state of nature, but 
the progress of civilization has substituted subservience to others for that freedom through dependence, economic and social inequalities, and the extent to which we judge ourselves through comparisons with others. Since a return to the state of nature is neither feasible nor desirable, the purpose of politics is to restore our freedom to us, thereby reconciling who we truly and essentially are with how we live together. So this is the fundamental philosophical problem that the social contract seeks to address. How can we be free and live together? Or, put another way, how can we live together without succumbing to the force and coercion of others? We can do so, Rousseau maintains, by submitting our individual particular wills to the collective or general will created through agreement with other free and equal persons. Like Hobbes and Locke before him, and in contrast to the ancient philosophers, all men are made by nature to be equals. Therefore, no one has a natural right to govern others, and therefore the only justified authority is the authority that is generated out of agreements or covenants. So he argues, the most basic covenant, the social pact, is the agreement to come together and form a people, a collectivity, which by definition is more than and different from a mere aggregation of individual interests and wills. This act, where individual persons become a people, is the real foundation of society. Through the collective renunciation of the individual rights and freedoms that one has in the state of nature, and the transfer of these rights to the collective body, a new person, as it were, is formed. The sovereign is thus formed when free and equal persons come together and agree to create themselves anew as a single body, directed to the good of all considered together. So just as individual wills are directed toward individual interests, the general will, once formed, is directed towards the common good, understood and agreed to collectively. Now, I just want to interject here that this sounds a lot like unity in the body of Christ. Essentially, what he's describing is that society is a body, and that by coming together in society and in, under a social contract, we essentially declare ourselves or agree amongst ourselves to be or form a collective body. You could see this as the body of Christ. Or let's say, to make this more general, it's the body of the world. And the question is whether this body will be the body of Christ or the body of Satan. And that depends on the form of this social contract. Will it be the image of Nebuchadnezzar or will it be the pure woman of Revelation 12 that this body of the world actually finally forms? Which will reign, good or evil? Who will be the head of this body? Will it be Christ or will it be Satan? Who is the sovereign that is thus formed when free and equal persons come together and agree to create themselves a new and single body? Is it Jesus Christ, the sovereign, the king of kings, or is it the usurper? And I would just say that if you choose Jesus Christ, then Bitcoin is the social contract that enables you to, to make that choice because Bitcoin, as we've seen throughout this podcast, is the financial implementation of the kingdom 
of heaven here on earth. It is a system that follows the patterns of the heavenly kingdom. By contrast, the system of the beast, the system of the governments of this world, like the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, like the kingdom of Babylon, are ultimately ruled by Satan and will lead to darkness and death. So, very interesting the way in which Rousseau describes the social contract as this agreement to form a body, a sovereign body, which of course he is alluding to as a king or a government, but which we can understand also as a king and a government, but as the body of Christ, as his kingdom and government. Included in this version of the social contract is the idea of reciprocated duties. The sovereign is committed to the good of the individuals who constitute it, and each individual is likewise committed to the good of the whole. Given this, Individuals cannot be given liberty to decide whether it is in their own interest to fulfill their duties to the sovereign, while at the same time being allowed to reap the benefits of citizenship. They must be made to conform themselves to the general will. They must be forced to be free. Now that's interesting, and it also is very harmonious with how Bitcoin works. When you interact with Bitcoin, you're forced, in a sense, to abide by the rules of the system. You're forced to be free. And part of that is you have to hold your own coins, right? You have that responsibility. With freedom comes responsibility. And to the degree that you don't take up that responsibility to hold your own keys, you also don't reap the benefits of freedom under the Bitcoin system. So it's a perfect implementation of what Rousseau envisions here in terms of the duties of the sovereign and the duties of the individuals, and how, for Rousseau, this implies an extremely strong and direct form of democracy. One cannot transfer one's will to another to do with as he or she sees fit, as one does in representative democracies, like the United States, for example, where you elect representatives who then ultimately cast their votes. Rather, the general will depends on coming together periodically. This is key now. The general will depends on the coming together periodically of the entire democratic body, each and every citizen, to decide collectively and with at least near unanimity how to live together, i.e. what laws to enact. As it is constituted only by individual wills, these private individual wills must assemble themselves regularly if the general will is to continue. Just to put that in the Christian context, do not forsake the gathering together of the believers, because it is through the regular assembling together that the general will is maintained. In other words, the Christian body falls apart when the individuals don't regularly assemble together. That's a basic Christian principle, and that's what Rousseau is describing here in his view of the social contract. But that's something that's very difficult for governments, large countries, to achieve. Therefore, you have this thing about voter turnout. How many people are actually voting? One implication of this is that the strong form of democracy, which is consistent with the general will, 
is also only possible in relatively small states. The people must be able to identify with one another and at least know who each other are. They cannot live in a large area too spread out to come together regularly, and they cannot live in such different geographical circumstances as to be unable to be united under common laws. Could the present-day U.S. satisfy Rousseau's conception of democracy? It could not. Although the conditions for true democracy are stringent, they are also the only means by which we can, according to Rousseau, save ourselves and regain the freedom to which we are naturally entitled. Wow. So here we now see Rousseau's advancement of the theory of social contracts, where he essentially argues for true democracy, not representative democracy. And it's acknowledged here that there's an inherent limitation in this when it comes to practical implementation and that it, it only works with relatively small countries, okay? But if we look at what Bitcoin brings to the situation, we find that node runners are regularly assembling together. That is to say they're in constant communication. They're maintaining connections at all times, exchanging information, consensus information, miners, are also in constant communication, and the mechanisms within the Bitcoin system for changing the laws, the consensus rules, what have you, the, the signaling mechanisms to signal acceptance of changes to the system, all this happens continually in fulfillment of this ideal of this regular assembling together of the individual constituents. In other words, Bitcoin is a practical implementation of what Rousseau could not envision happening on a large scale, certainly not on a worldwide scale. Bitcoin can accomplish on a worldwide scale true democracy. That is to say, where the individuals have the vote and not a representative democracy, as is the case in the U.S. And the problem with, just to kind of rehash the, and just to make it clear, the problem with representative democracy is the fact that the representatives can be bought. They can promise one thing to get the people's votes, and then they can act in a different way in order to get funding under the table or through any other corrupt means. And that's what Rousseau was protecting against in his concept of the social contract, in his understanding that it was necessary for the individual's to come together in a direct form of democracy. This idea that they must be forced to be free. They must have the responsibility of their freedom. Very interesting. And it's very interesting, I think, that while Rousseau laid out more difficult requirements for the social contract, those requirements are actually satisfied perfectly by Bitcoin. And so this seemingly impractical view of social contract theory actually becomes practical with Bitcoin. Rousseau's social contract theories together form a single consistent view of our moral and political situation. We are endowed with freedom and equality by nature, but our nature has been corrupted by our contingent social history. We can overcome this corruption however, by invoking our free will to reconstitute ourselves politically 
along strongly democratic principles, as in the system of Bitcoin, which is good for us, both individually and collectively. Wow, very interesting. And I would say Bitcoin is a vindication of social contract theory as developed by Plato, Socrates, Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau. Now, this article that I'm reading from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy then transitions into more recent social contract theories, starting with John Rawls's A Theory of Justice. This extremely influential work brought moral and political philosophy back from what had been a long hiatus of philosophical consideration. Rawls's theory relies on a Kantian understanding of persons and their capacities. For Rawls, as for Kant, persons have a capacity to reason from a universal point of view, which in turn means that they have the particular moral capacity of judging principles from an impartial standpoint. Rawls argues that the moral and political point of view is discovered via impartiality. I'm going to kind of skip through this a little bit just to hit the main points. He invokes this point of view by imagining persons in a hypothetical situation, the original position, which is characterized by the epistemological limitation of the veil of ignorance. In other words, in Rawls's original position is his highly abstracted version of the state of nature. It is the position from which we can discover the nature of justice and what it requires of us as individual persons and of the social institutions through which we will live together cooperatively. In the original position, behind the veil of ignorance, one is denied any particular knowledge of one's circumstances, such as one's gender, race, particular talents or disabilities, one's age, social status, one's particular conception of what makes for a good life, or the particular state of the society in which one lives. Persons are also assumed to be rational and disinterested in one another's well-being. These are the conditions under which Rawls argues. One can choose principles for a just society which are themselves chosen from initial conditions that are inherently fair. Because no one has any of the particular knowledge he or she could use to develop principles that favor his or her own particular circumstances, in other words, the knowledge that makes for and sustains prejudices, the principles chosen from such a perspective are necessarily fair. For example, if one does not know whether one is female or male in the society for which one must choose basic principles of justice, it makes no sense from the point of view of self-interested rationality to endorse a principle that favors one sex at the expense of another, since once the veil of ignorance is lifted, one might find oneself on the losing end of such a principle. Hence, Rawls describes his theory as justice as fairness, because the conditions under which the principles of justice are discovered are basically fair, justice proceeds out of fairness. So basically, the point here, it was kind of a wordy way of saying that if in developing the social contract, you make yourself ignorant of gender, race, social status, everything, then you can create a truly fair social contract. 
This is in contrast to, for example, if the social contract is formed under the assumption that everyone participating in the contract is male, for example, then you're going to get a contract that favors the needs of males over females. So again, what Rawls is doing here is what all of the philosophers before have done, is he's taking what appears to be a weakness in social contract theory and attempting to improve upon the theory. In this case, by removing prejudices. Now, we can see that Bitcoin automatically, again, meets this need, right? When you interact with the Bitcoin blockchain, the blockchain doesn't ask you whether you're male or female. It doesn't make any assumptions as to whether you're black or white. It's equally open to all. It's a fair system of justice, in Rawls's language. The article then goes on to talk about David Gutier and his idea that essentially a sovereign with absolute authority is not necessary because the individual agents are able to reason in a way that they automatically understand just from a self-interested perspective that it's better to cooperate with each other than to be at war with each other. And in the context of Bitcoin, this is kind of a no-brainer in the sense that Bitcoin is a system without any central ruler and that it does incentivize cooperation by its very nature as being a social contract implementation that protects individual rights, individual property rights. And so essentially Gutierrez's vision for the social contract is also met by the system of Bitcoin. And the limitation or the disadvantage of the monarch that he was addressing is essentially a non-issue. After this, the article goes on to the contemporary critiques of social contract theory. And I just want to touch on this kind of in the same vein of recognizing that these critiques are essentially nullified by the characteristics of Bitcoin as an implementation of social contract theory. And we've kind of seen that along the way, so I don't want to spend too much time on this, but just to kind of drive the point home. It says, given the long-standing and widespread influence that social contract theory has had, it comes as no surprise that it is also the objects of many critiques from a variety of philosophical perspectives. Feminists and race-conscious philosophers in particular have made important arguments concerning the substance and viability of social contract theory. And I think, in essence, we've kind of addressed that pretty well already in just recognizing that Bitcoin doesn't ask whether you're male or female. It's not a sexually discriminatory social contract in any way, shape, or form. And likewise, it does not discriminate based on race, creed, or any other characteristics of the person. It is behind the perfect veil of ignorance, to use the language of Rawls. It doesn't presuppose any kind of dominance of one individual over another. And as a result, in a purely objective way, it is simply open to all who use it. And to the extent that anybody interacts with it, they will learn the rules of the system in the same way that a person learns the rules of nature, the laws of nature. And 
it applies those laws, the laws of the Bitcoin network, with the same rigor and immutability as nature applies its laws. Children quickly learn how to walk because it's faster to get around than crawling and less energy intensive, and they quickly learn how to do it without falling because falling hurts and it's inefficient. So in the same way, people who interact with Bitcoin quickly learn that they have to guard their keys, otherwise they will suffer loss, and that it's good to use it and hodl and so forth because it is more efficient than other methods and it protects one's personal property better. So there you have it. I think there's not a lot more for me to add here, but let's just bring this to a conclusion and say that in summary, the criticisms of social contract theory ultimately focus on the weaknesses and the evident failures that have resulted in all the practical implementations of social contract theory in the real world. But this does not invalidate social contract theory in and of itself. And in fact, what we've seen throughout this review of the history of social contract theory is that with the right implementation, which Bitcoin seems to be, all of the issues and criticisms against social contract theory are answered. And what we're left with is the simple conclusion that despite the failures of implementation, social contract theory has developed over the years as a tried and true outworking of the human desire for a just and equitable society. And Bitcoin comes to us at this point in time as the perfect implementation of social contract theory that brings justice and equality to reality for everyone who opts into the social contract of Bitcoin. We've seen how Plato and Socrates described in sort of a precursor form the basics of the social contract in terms that could easily be understood from a Christian perspective in the light of what Jesus Christ has done in covenanting with mankind for mankind's redemption. We've seen how Hobbes has argued that even in the worst case scenario of the fallen human nature, it is still in mankind's best interest to pursue the social contract. We've seen from John Locke that the defense of private property is essential and foundational to the social contract. And from Rousseau, we learned that the social contract needs to be implemented in a truly democratic way without intermediaries, and that individual responsibility is necessary for individual freedom. From Rawls, we learned that the social contract must be implemented in a way that is ignorant of gender or race or any other specifics of a person's class within society in order for the system to be equitable for all. And Gautier reiterates the point that the social contract is logically between individuals and does not need to rely on a partial authority, such as a king or government, and that the incentives of the system ideally are sufficient to ensure that the social contract continues 
without deteriorating and degenerating into corruption and immorality. And furthermore, we've seen along the way that Bitcoin fulfills all of these ideals of the social contract in a way that nullifies the criticisms brought by especially those arguing for sexual and racial equality, because as a system, Bitcoin is inherently agnostic to the sex or race or any other characteristics of the individuals interacting with it. Furthermore, it was noted by Locke that we have a possibility or even a duty to exit any social contract that is not upholding personal property rights as the core foundation of the social contract and to form a new social contract with a better implementation. And so I think what we've seen here is that the social contract is biblical in its origins, coming all the way from, ultimately from the case brought before the heavenly court, wherein Lucifer accused God of not providing the best form of government for his creations. And we saw that Jesus Christ involved himself in a contract, in a covenant with mankind for mankind's redemption, and that he fulfilled his contract through his death on the cross, which demonstrated the love with which he entered into the covenant. And ultimately, we can understand that as we have seen in previous episodes, that Bitcoin, because it represents the value, the combined value of the entire planet Earth, which is the property of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ has placed that in our hands through Bitcoin, through a just system that divides the property amongst us in a fair and impartial manner under rules, under a social contract that is fair and just to all parties, irrespective of gender, irrespective of race, irrespective of any other characteristic, we see that God has made the way. He has provided us not only with the social contract, but with the implementation of it that enables freedom to the ultimate extent possible within the constraints of God's law for the ultimate happiness of his creation. Will you choose that system? Will you choose the government of heaven today by opting to go full in on the social contract of Bitcoin? Or will you continue to fiddle around with the old existing banking system that is stealing and oppressing, enslaving, and essentially making void, betraying the very social pact that gave rise to it? Will you follow the way of life, the way that preserves life, or the way of death, the way that leads to death? That is the choice that is hanging before the world today. That is what the jury, what humanity must decide here in the day of judgment, in the great day of the Lord. And the fact that the earth is now full means that we have to confront this. The day of judgment has come. We have to make this decision. Every one of us must make this decision to stay in the system of slavery or to opt out and opt in to the system of freedom that corresponds to the kingdom of God. And in that way, we make our vote for the future government 
of the universe? Will it be the government of life following the Lord of life or the government of death, the cessation of life under the king of the dead? That is the choice facing humanity today. And as every jury must come to a unanimous decision, the ultimate showdown that has begun now that the earth is full is the showdown as to which of these two systems will ultimately reign, which will ultimately survive, which will stand. As the Bible says, who shall be able to stand in this great and terrible day of the Lord? And every Christian knows that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ, only by his sacrifice, which secured for us the eternal reward. It is only by faithfulness to him that we can stand through the end of this world as we know it. So may God strengthen you and may he give you the courage to make the difficult choices and the sacrifices needed in order to switch over to the Bitcoin standard and to join the new implementation of the social contract that addresses all of the weaknesses and inefficiencies of the old implementations that have given rise to corruption and have ultimately proven insufficient in meeting the needs of mankind to find that optimal middle ground of justice between the extremes that exemplify the kingdom of Satan. Your decisions have eternal consequences, not only for you, but for the entire universe. May God be with you.